Yes, indeed, that, that's what it is. And uh, we always do it in partnership with the London-based Middle East Monitor. Website, www.middleeastmonitor.com. Twitter, at Middle East MNT. Stories we're going to cover. Victory for BDS as judge slaps down a Zionist attempt to stifle free speech. Ethiopia renews her commitment to the African Union mediation in the dam talks. That's the Nile Dam. And the BBC's coverage of the Pope's visit to Iraq has been accused of being biased and misleading. Online for comment is member contributor and fellow at the Ashark Forum in Istanbul, Tembisa Fakuri. Tembisa, Asalaamu Alaikum. Wa Alaikum Asalaamu Interesting story. When I saw the headline, Victory for BDS, uh, as Judd slaps down, I was wondering which case was it, uh, South African Jewish Report in South Africa, um, our own judge uh, um, president uh, also being slapped down. But no, this is something happening offshore. Tell us more. Yeah, this is uh, about the post that was used by one of the uh, BDS activists or Palestinian activists, uh, Suhair Nafal, in the United States, where she used a, uh, a picture of uh, an Israeli, um, well, former Israeli soldier by the name of Rebecca Romshiskaya. And um, she was just trying to make a point, kind of juxtaposing a, a, a picture of a, a Palestinian that was shot uh, by the Israeli soldiers to that of Rebecca, just to make a comparison on, on, on social media. She, she just randomly picked up the picture and posted uh, on a on a Facebook page, and for that uh, she was then taken to court. Um, the 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 people who took her to court, of course, uh, claiming that they were, uh, the 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 person involved, which is Rebecca uh, Ramshiskaya, was uh, was was framed by the post, which um, which which was which uh, Suhey uh, posted. So that created a bit of a problem. But the the, the big issue here is that these are tactics that are often used by the um, Israeli activists or some of the people who are against the BDS campaign, not only in the United States but across the, the globe, to discourage uh, the, 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 BDS, the BDS campaign. And the judge in the United States, uh, of course, kicked out the, 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 the lawsuit and um, further uh, slapped her with uh, some kind of uh, punishment to pay for the legal fees. And that uh, was seen by the BDS uh, people in the United States as, as, as a victory for the BDS campaign. In other words, this continual intimidation of BDS uh, activists and campaigns around the world, uh, this was one of them. Uh, as you said earlier on, that in South Africa we had something similar, where the BDS took uh, up the case of uh, Judge Mohoem Khoeng, and uh, he was also later instructed by the, the, the court to go and apologize. So this is one of those issues where you've got this whole... Uh, culture, the woke activists around the world who are continually watching what BDS is doing and they will use whatever legal technicalities to to prevent the, the work of the BDS. So this was one of those instances. Yeah, and, and of course in South Africa, um, the South African Jewish Report question surrounds the Clover cartoon. Uh, they were claiming that the Clover cartoon was... Uh, uh, anti-Semitic, and of course they lost that ha- hands down. They've lost their appeal, and now they have to um, publish an apology. I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, on their front page. So, yeah, it's it's almost 
smacks of desperation. And uh, anti-Semitism right now is a bit of a rabbit hole, isn't it? Oh, yes, true. I mean, in South Africa, two cases, one after the other, where the judges have come out uh, in support of, at least in our case, BDS, and against the those that all the time will call on this anti-Semitism uh, defense uh, to prevent uh, Palestinian activism and to prevent the voices that are speaking against the violation of basic human rights in Israel. So it was a great victory for, for the Palestinian cause over the past uh, at least a week and a half in South Africa uh, for, for, for those both cases, including the one involving our Chief Justice uh, Mohuang Mohuang, who, by the way, still hasn't 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 uh, withdrawn and apologized for the statements and that was that what the the the, the commission the judicial commission has instructed him to do so we are all waiting with a bated breath to see what he's going to be doing yeah well the judge president has actually said he will not apologize for his views on this thing which unfortunately is going to put him in the same camp as President uh, Jacob Zuma in terms of constitutionality. I know we're deviating slightly a little bit off the topic, but uh, I think it is still relevant. Well, that's what that's what actually has been has uh, been has been criticised for, and that's what the Commission has criticised him for, which is the his insistence to say he wasn't going to apologise. That was seen by the Judicial uh, Commission as a violation of of his oath. That insistence of saying, you know, you can do whatever you want to do, even if 40 million people can come and protest, etc., all the statements that is uttered, that he wasn't going to apologize. So that he's forced to apologize because of that, of that particular statement. So he will be eating humble pie soon. And I think if he appeals this, this, this situation, he'll be digging himself even much more deeper uh, into the hole. Because right now, he, the best he can do to kill the story is to just come up, apologize, and uh, let's all move forward. But uh, by the look of things, he's uh, digging his heels and he's not going to be apologizing soon, which is not only going to compromise him as the judge, but the judicial system in his country. If he's sitting on top of the food chain in terms of the legal fraternity and he's the one who will be like Jacob Zuma, who's supposed to uh, uphold the Constitution, in this instance, is the is an overall principle overseer of, 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 of our legal system. If he also goes against the recommendation of his colleagues, uh, whom the majority of whom have found him uh, guilty of this, he will certainly be undermining the entire legal system in South Africa. No, absolutely all pertinent points raised there. Let's move on to Ethiopia renewing its commitment to the African Union for mediation in the dam talks. Of course, we're talking about the Nile Dam. This is a big one because the environmental uh, impact could be quite interesting, I'll put it that way, for people further down the river because the Nile goes through several countries who are reliant upon its uh, water. And uh, Ethiopia's dam, it's a very big one. Uh, Egypt not very happy uh, down further downstream. Well, that's true, but, uh, well, there are two countries that stand to uh, to be disadvantaged by the dam, which is Sudan and and, and Egypt. Uh, but the, the the challenge is that Egypt and Sudan had, in the past, signed certain treaties uh, which did not include uh, the other African countries who share uh, the Nile. And the argument at the moment is that they've made decisions that uh, enabled them to 
get the lion's share of the water. Um, and when those decisions were taken, most of these African countries were still under the colonial rule and they had no say uh, in, in, in those uh, treaties and agreements that were reached mainly between Sudan and Egypt. With, of course, the, um, the, the, the end of colonization and many of these countries uh, beginning to seek alternative sources for energy, they are now beginning to build uh, hydroelectric dams so that they can supplement uh, their uh, their energy energy sources within their countries. And one of those one of those countries that has done that recently with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is Ethiopia, and that has created uh, serious uh, discussion. But Ethiopia has the right to use its natural resource, uh, and the, the Nile is also part of Ethiopia's natural resource now. Egyptians, when they started these negotiations, uh, were a bit arrogant, uh, telling the Ethiopians that you have enough rainfalls, you can rely on the rainfalls instead of the Nile, etc. You know, the whole typical, you know, North African attitude towards the sub-Saharan uh, Africans. Yes, and that, yes. Has, uh, that has, to an extent, angered, angered Ethiopians, and South Africa has been involved in trying to negotiate a settlement between Sudan uh, and Egypt on one hand and Ethiopia, but we've seen other African countries joining the frail in support of Ethiopia and the right of Ethiopia to, to construct the dam. So there is a polarization at the moment. You have Sudan, Egypt uh, on one side, and with Ethiopia supported by uh, over at least eight African countries who also are part of the, of, who are sharing the Nile uh, with, with this country. So, it, there's an outnumbering of uh, support, uh, most Africans supporting uh, supporting um, Ethiopia. And um, Ethiopia, in fact, initially, uh, you know, undermined the African Union by taking this issue into, into the United Nations. And that also angered many African countries who felt that uh, Africa should start looking at its own problems and coming up with its own solution. Again, the arrogance and the you know undermining of the sub-Saharan Africa by the Egyptians, at least according to some of the Ethiopians who spoke to before, because I was there when this thing was happening, they felt that you know Egypt continues to undermine sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, instead of it engaging constructively with the with Ethiopia, they've decided to, to take a much more uh, hard uh, stance. I mean, you remember what uh, Mohammed uh, I mean uh, Abdullah Fatal Sisi said that they will. They will they will die uh, uh, instead of uh, relinquishing their right uh, over the Nile, forgetting that the source of the Nile is in Africa, and the Nile runs through many African countries before it reaches Egypt. All along, we all thought that the Nile was coming from Egypt, but actually, the Nile is not an Egyptian uh, river; it is an African river. It is it flows downstream uh, into Egypt, but Egypt has pretended and acted over the years as if. Uh, they own the Nile and that the source of the Nile is in Egypt. Yeah, it's true. In fact, the source of the Nile is in the highlands of Uganda, actually. Or And uh, um, one of the Niles, I can't remember whether it's the blue or the white Nile, and mm-hmm. uh, the source of one of the other Niles is, if I remember correctly, in the Ethiopian highlands. Um, yeah, the white Nile. Yeah, and of course, Egypt, as you so correctly say, I was very surprised by Egypt's attitude when the only thing that they could put on the table, as you said, was this colonial dispensation which allowed them to use the river. I was totally gobsmacked when I saw such unbridled arrogance. The Egyptians really have shot themselves in the foot, haven't they? 
Yeah, and this was, I think they, they could have easily reached a some kind of uh, solution between Ethiopia and other African countries. But the position of Egypt and Sudan later on uh, was, to an extent, undermining to the effort, uh, dictating to Ethiopia not to construct the, the dam, dictating to Ethiopia to consult them uh, when they begin filling up the dam, uh, etc. But I, I think the, uh, the, 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 what was the, the most undermining statement was when Egypt said that Ethiopia must not entirely rely on the Nile because they have favorable rainfalls as part of an African, African country. So they don't have rainfall, and as a result, they must just allow the Nile to, to flow into, into Egypt. That, of course, created uh, some kind of, you know, discomfort within some of the uh, political circles in, in, in Ethiopia uh, who have looked at this as, as, as very undermining to, uh, to, to, to Ethiopia. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, our last story today is BBC being accused of biased and misleading coverage of the Pope's visit to Iraq. The Pope met up with Ayatollah Sistani. Um, and, yeah, tell us more. Well, I think, you know, you know the, the biggest challenge with what's called the, the microwave journalism, where you, you shuttle people from headquarters into covering a, a big story such as this one, they are bound to make mistakes. Uh-huh. Uh, there are a lot of nuances and a lot of, you, you need some kind of historical understanding. I mean, last week we had one of the, I'm not going to mention the name, one of the most senior members within the South African government in the, inside the presidency who has said that um, the Pope Francis will be meeting Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> uh, okay. People don't, even know, people don't be- even know the difference between... I mean, I would have, I would have, I would have uh, forgiven him if he, was, if he said Khamenei, because the current uh, Ayatollah in Iran is Khamenei. I would have said, okay, maybe you know, he made a mistake. He thought the, the Pope was going to Iran instead of Iraq. But the name uh, Ali... Uh, Sistani is not even known uh, to some of these people. They don't know the differences in terms of even knowing that most of the shrines, the Shia shrines, most important Shia shrines, are actually in Najaf, are actually in Iraq. Most people think that because Iran is often associated with Shia Islam, it is the main uh, kind of headquarter of, of Shia Islam. But actually, uh, Ali Sistani is much more powerful than Ali Khamenei of Iran because he sits at the at the heart or the center of, of of Shia Islam, which is in in Najaf in Iraq, so that's that's the first point. And you know, again, this whole business of parachuting people in from from headquarters to cover difficult stories such as this one, we even know sometimes how they interchangeably use the word uh, Sunni Islam and the Kids. Yet the Kids are actually Sunni Muslims. But they we are they portray this image that there are three different sects in Islam. You've got you've got the Kids, you've got the the Shia and the Sunni. But the majority of the Kids are actually uh, Sunni Muslims. So yes. you need people who understand this, people who who live in, in these areas when such important sta- stories are going to be covered. And I think what the BBC has done not only do they rely heavily on fixes, they tend to uh, import or parachute. A journalist from 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 headquarters for various reasons, of course. I mean, sometimes it's difficult for for people proximate to the story to get visas, etc. So 
at the moment, the, the easiest passport uh, to get a visa of any country is a British passport. So what normally happens is they will parachute these people who have little experience about the story and who understand the complexities of, 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 of politics of the region to cover the story. So that's when you will find that there will always be these mistakes uh, repeated and committed by the journalists. And I think that's what happened uh, this time around. Uh, you had like very stupid uh, mistakes. In fact, most of them were, 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 were on Twitter, which the, uh, the BBC had to continually rectify because they were creating embarrassment uh, for the entire institution. Yeah, I mean, the journalist that parachuted in was BBC's Rome correspondent Mark Lowen. But what, mm-hmm. what disappoints me, you know, um, I've been parachuted into stories many times during my career. You've sent many journalists on those kind of assignments. Seriously, a Wikipedia search, a Wikipedia search of all things, would have made Mark Lowen's life so much easier. He was so lazy, and this is my perception, he didn't even bother to do the basic research. One Google, uh, uh, Mufti Google, and he would have been right on the story, but he didn't do it. And that, to me, is a total indictment on the BBC. Yeah, well, they get away, they get away with it often, and uh, they never taken they taken up. But this time around, because it was such a big story, you had people who were actually, you know, this whole woke culture yes. of young activists who are actually observing who's doing what, where. But it was such a it was so obvious for the BBC this time around that they were misrepresenting uh, facts. They could even pronounce certain names. It was actually quite embarrassing. They could even pronounce certain names. Uh, I mean, I followed the the, the coverage. They couldn't pronounce certain Arabic names. They were struggling with, uh, with 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 numbers and statistics. They couldn't. They ended up actually um, talking more about uh, about about the, the 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 meeting instead of the content of the meeting. What was agreed between uh, Pope Francis and uh, Ayatollah Ali Sistan? It was not only uh, regarding the kids, but there was something more important in terms of how the the Shia of Iraq were involved in fighting uh, Daesh. And uh, Pope Francis actually went on congratulating the Iraqis through Atollah uh, Sistani of fighting, of fighting the uh, Daesh. But also at the same time, the BBC decided to, 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 to uh, lean heavily on covering the Christian aspect of, 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 of Iraq as if the Sunni or the Shia Muslims, the, the Shia Muslims of Iraq, were the ones who were actually attacking and uh, destroying the Christian shrines. Whilst we now know that it was Daesh and some of the Sunni uh, groupings within Islam that were, were targeting the Christians' uh, installations in, in, in Iraq. It was not the Shia uh, majority that was involved in destruction in, in Iraq, rather... It was Daesh, and Daesh being a Sunni-led uh, radical movement to use some of the Sunni, particularly the tribesmen, support to to go and wage a war uh, against some of the Christians in, in Iraq. Yeah, and of course, I mean, what the story has failed to, to reflect is that most um, Sunnis around the world, whether they in, are in Iraq or anywhere else, um, do not support Daesh. Uh, in fact, uh, well over 90%, and I would say 99% of Muslims do not support Daesh. So it's, it's rather sad that um, 
the story has got been so mixed up. In fact, um, they did what uh, Mahdi um, uh, Hassan uh, asked yeah. certain congressmen, do you know the difference between Sunni and Shia? And, and these were congressmen in the intelligence community, and they didn't actually know the difference between Sunni and Shia at all. So this, I think, uh, is quite uh, illustrative of what we have to deal with when um, these missions are undertaken when the Pope goes to a place like Iraq, because nobody actually knows anything of what's happening on the ground. No, that's true. And I mean, again, the BBC coverage, you know, the assumption that because you had uh, Saddam Hussein ruling Iraq for such a long time that Iraq was actually a, 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 a Sunni-dominated society. But actually, Iraq is majority Shia. Yeah. And as you say, you know, most people don't even know the difference. As you said, alone, people think that uh, if you talk about uh, uh, Sunni uh, Shia, some of them think that is the same thing, except that the others have got an Ayatollah and we've got Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia for Sunni. So, so these are some of the things that actually are embarrassing. And this time around, the PPC finds itself in a situation where it couldn't, it couldn't escape the embarrassment because of, as you said, lack of preparedness uh, by some of the, particularly the technical staff that went into covering the, uh, the visit by the Pope uh, in, 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 in Iraq. Indeed, Tempisa Fogudi, we have to leave it there. We could have had a carried on discussing this for a long time. Tembisa mm-hmm. Fakudi, memo contributor, also from the Ashark Forum in Istanbul, uh, doing our Middle East report, as we always do it, in partnership with the London-based Middle East Monitor, www.middleeastmonitor.com, Twitter handle, at Middle East MNT. Tembisa, as always, thank you for joining us. Shukran, Shafiq. Salam alaikum.